welcome to another episode of the art salon don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media to keep up with our latest guests and announcements be sure to follow us at the art salon on instagram if you would like to support the podcast please visit the support section on the anchor website where you can contribute to the podcast once or by setting up recurring donations today's guest is charlie schluter the legendary former principal trumpet of the boston symphony but he's so much more than that Once upon a time, I applied to be his student at NEC after high school, but eventually ended up getting a secondhand smoke from his old student, Russ Devist. I was interested in having him on the podcast for this reason, but also to get some more insight into the earlier career of my hero, Thomas Stevens. Charlie and I talk at length about his interests in music and some of the growing trends in the trumpet community that have shifted this artistic profession into glorified acrobatics. This is a long conversation, so I will keep this introduction short. Charlie and I will likely have a follow-up conversation soon to cover his fantastic new book, which I'm currently finishing. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy. With that, I leave you with Charlie Schluter. But also, you know, the fact that you're talking about Tom Stevens, because... um, our mutual best friend, Gene Young, died just about a month before Tom did. And I was about to call Tom to reminisce over about Gene when I found out he had died, because I had no idea that he was ill. I mean, he, Tom being the private person that he was, but, but we had we had a long association, mostly by, cal- by telephone, but I first heard of him when I was in, in the Cleveland Orchestra. I was teaching in the settlement school and a clarinet student of Bob Marcellus had gone to USC with with Tom, so I first heard about him that way. But there there are some funny stories about Tom which you may not have heard. Which uh, I, since, I, since I would love to hear that. Yeah, I, I won't mention names. And since you know Tom is throughout disputed, but when he was in Dallas, he was playing second trumpet. And he, you did did you know him at all? I mean. Uh, I was very lucky to know Tom about the last five or six years of his life. Uh, and we, while I never studied with him, we, I, I was lucky enough that we kind of established a correspondence that, you know, I hold very dear. And I would see him in the summers in, at Chosen Vale and spend I, a week there with him. I, I, I went up to visit Chosen Vale once to, to visit him and Gabriel Casoni. Yes, I studied with Gabriel as well. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. You had been there that summer. I went up. I mean, I I, I don't know what year it was. Anyway, yeah. when if there was a big first trumpet solo, Tom would flip a quarter onto his first trumpet stand, and if he missed anything, he'd take the quarter back. <laughs> <laughs> we did that. You know, he's lucky he didn't get you know hit in the mouth or something. But but he he also he and Gene were at West Point together. And Gene told me this story. They, they used to drive down to New York to have lessons with Vacchiano at his house. And Gene said, every week, every time we went down, it was always the same thing. It was always transposition with, with Bill. And with, with me, I didn't have anything but a B-flat trumpet until I was in my last year at Juilliard. So, I mean, E-natural trumpet just drove me nuts, right? But Gene said, every time Vacchiano would say, hey, Young, where'd you learn how to transpose so good? And Gene said, well, I started out playing piano and I started with Henry Volkermuth in Cincinnati. I've been transposing forever. Bill would say, hey, Stevens, how come you can't transpose as good as Young here? <laughs> and, Gene, 
She said all the way back to West Point, Thomas said, damn nasty old man, he just won't leave me alone. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not always necessary to study with someone to learn from them, right? So, That's right. Anyway, the uh, I made some notes here just to keep track of what I was doing. It was, I actually subbed for Tom on two occasions in back in 1975 when his dog hit him in the mouth. Uh, I, I was supposed, he was supposed to do a, a session at the first International Trumpet Guild in 1975 on orchestral playing. And I ended up doing that. And of course I, I never done anything like that. And it was supposed to be like that under an hour. And after about an hour and a half, Charlie Gorham said, maybe we should start wrapping this up. I, because I, I probably played about half of the, in fact, Betty, um, I forgot her name. She used to work for Shilke in Chicago. But I was taking questions at the end and she said, I thought, oh boy, I'm gonna get it now. She says, well, I've been going all those trumpet symposiums and I've heard a lot of trumpet players, but I've never heard anybody do what you did. I said, what did I do? She said, you just played every major trumpet audition in the entire country. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, okay. I mean, I'd, I'd only played like three or four auditions by that time. So I, I guess that's what I was doing. But anyway, that that was, uh, I also then played this Casals Festival that Tom was supposed to have done. And it was interesting because the, the woman who was principal clarinet in Los Angeles at the time, Michelle Kaufman, I think was her name. When she went back after the festival, she went up to Tom and says, well, I finally heard a Trump player more crude than you are. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we thought we were probably in, in good company because of that. <laughs> Anyways, I also then, um, my, we, Tom and I talked a lot, you know, when, when I was in Minneapolis. Um, and we, we had, this is before he became more reclusive, but I mean, we would talk, you know, probably at least once a month, maybe, maybe more than that. And in, in 1979, was when Catala re <clears throat> re retired from Boston. And they, first the bass trombone called me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming. I said, no, not really. I'm, I'm happy in Minneapolis and, and I, I, don't, I don't do naked auditions anymore. You know, just play an excerpt. So he, said, he thanked me. About two weeks later, the personnel manager called me asking the same questions. And I said, look, you know, the only thing Boston really has to offer over me what I have here in Minneapolis is is live lobster and open water sailing. <laughs> I, I guess I, I was probably more of a smart ass than I should have been, but but I, I wasn't I wasn't looking for a job. I said, if you want to hear me, you can pay my expense. I'll come out and play with the orchestra. He said, Well, we can't do that. I said, Fine, I understand that. I said, I, you know, you have your your contract. I have my standards, and you know that's and and besides, you're calling me. I didn't call you. So about two days later, I got a call from Stevens and he says, well, I thought I should talk to the other guy that refused to engage in a shootout with the young kids. I said, what are you talking about? <clears throat> he said, I got a call from the assistant manager because I'd gone to school with him. And when I told him you know, that I was interested, he said, have you been talking to Schluter? And Tom says, why? He says, because he just told me virtually the same thing. So <laughs> you just so confirmed something for me that I had heard from Tom and I trusted Tom a lot because, you know, he would always confirm everything. Uh, he was pretty trustworthy about the stories he told, but 
I had never talked to anyone else about this. I had heard that rumor that Tom had also been in the running for, or like considered for the job when well, you when you had been. All right, two two years later, when Roth was leaving, I got a call from the personnel manager again. It's on a Tuesday evening, <clears throat> just about dinner time, and he says, uh, "Well, well I'd, I'd seen him in in." In Boston in in November on on, on election day in 1980 because Minnesota Orchestra was on tour and we had a day off so I went into Boston with friends. He called me at that time and said virtually the he said I was about to call you again and I I want to see if your position was the same as the last time. I said well what do you mean? He said well um, we have a new system now for auditioning. People come in and the audition is taped and then the committee listens to it. I said and how is that different? He said, well, it assures your anonymity. And me, my smart eyes out. So why are you looking for an anonymous principal trumpet? <laughs> and, and he said, well, I, I, you know, some people don't want it to be known that, that they're auditioning somewhere. I said, yeah, in theory that might work. But when Chuck Kowalowski auditioned for Minneapolis, when Phil Myers went to New York, they took him in through a different door. He was in a separate room. He was in the hall maybe five minutes or less. And somebody said, hey, Chuck's auditioning today. So that really doesn't work. I said, that's not the point. I, I, don't, I don't want to just play a bunch of excerpts because that's not what I do. He said, well, I would really like to hear you play. And I said, Minnesota Orchestra broadcasts every Friday night live. Tune in. <clears throat> I said, we're doing Alpine Symphony in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to be doing Cantata 51, Quiet City, Pines of Rome. You know, That'll give you some idea, right? So anyway, that, so now he's calling me in February saying, we've decided to do things your way. And I said, what, what does that mean? He said, well, we're, we've heard everybody we're gonna play, that we're planning to, and we're inviting people to play with the orchestra. I said, okay, when do you wanna do that? He said, well, a week from this Thursday. I said, I can't do it then. I'm off this week, you wanna do it day after tomorrow? He said, what? So I get back to you. So he calls back and said, yeah, we can do it this Thursday. I may be the only person in the world who's ever asked to have an audition moved earlier. Right? <laughs> but as I told him, I said, I don't practice the repertoire. I play it every day. So I said, you have to give me the list of what's on because I have to know what instruments to bring with me. So he read off, I don't know, 16, 17 pieces. And I said, well, according to what I use on those pieces, I'm going to be bringing eight instruments with me. So you're going to have to pay an extra half fare to get my instruments on board, because I don't check my horns when I travel. No problem, just give me. So I called the airlines, made a reservation, called some friends in Boston, say, can I stay overnight tomorrow night? <clears throat> and I, I played through everything once, put the horn in the case, and I flew to Boston. If I'd had 10 days, I could have talked myself out of playing any of those things, but I would have started practicing, right? <laughs> and that's that brings me to you know one of my pet peeves of the way auditions are done today, and people practice except to the point that makes them want to throw up, let alone that they hate the piece, right? <clears throat> so anyway, that's that's how that happened. Anyway, two days later at seven o'clock in the morning in Minneapolis, the phone rings. I pick it up, says Stevens. Tom, it's five o'clock in the morning. What the hell are you doing? And, oh, I get up early. <laughs> he says, Okay, well, good morning. He said, I thought you weren't gonna to go to Boston. I said, Look. They met all my conditions. He said, well, now they want me to go. I said, so go get a free trip to Boston, have a live lobster. What can I tell you? <clears throat> so 
it was like two or three weeks because Osama was going away somewhere. Probably to either Europe or Japan. So when he finally auditioned, then like a week after that, this is already like probably middle of March, the manager of Boston calls me and he's, he's in Minneapolis. He came out to talk to me. I said, what, 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 I mean, I know the orchestra's playing here next month, but he said, no, that's all said. He said, I, I, I know you'd said you had some reservations and some conditions, you know, to be met. I just wanted to make sure I know what, what they are. So we had lunch or dinner, or I don't remember, talked for a few hours. It would, at some point in there, I had been on the negotiating committee in Minneapolis in 79. And I read probably every major contract in the country, including Boston's. And under Dublin, it said there was a double paid for contrabassoon for rubber ducking. And I said, could you explain that to me? He said, you saw that? I said, what do you mean I saw it? It's in the contract. He says, nobody on our committee saw it. He says, I put that in as a joke. Because they, they were doing a show with Bob McGrath about Sesame Street, right? And they, they wanted everybody to have a rubber ducky. Okay. <clears throat> so I think they, they, only, they only gave it for country. So I said, all right, if, if I end up signing a contract, I want my own rubber ducky. And I got it. <laughs> but anyway, he was going, leaving Minneapolis, going out to, to talk to Tom. Right? And when he got there, Tom said, Look, I've decided I'm not really interested, so it's, it's, it's between you and Schluter. And Morris, the manager, said, what's with you guys? You think you got some, some kind of a cartel? And Tom says, why is it when you guys do that, it's good business, and we do it as a cartel? <laughs> that sounds about right for him. <laughs> so, so that's, I mean, that, that's, he, he epitomized his business card, right? <laughs> that Bobo had made. Gold, yeah. Right? <laughs> anyway, so that you know, we we were in touch quite a bit. In fact, I I remember when I was I had I used to have a place up in um, Newburyport in, in Plum Island. I got a call from Tom, and he said, hey, "Man, I, I don't know what to do." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Well, Bob Duvall just retired. Erwin Bush is going to become full time personnel manager, and and uh, Mario Guarneri." Uh, resigned from the orchestra because he's getting divorced. Oh, that's another story. He says, they want me to be principal. I said, so? He said, well, I, you know, I've been co-principal for all these years. I said, the only difference is that you'll still decide what you want to play. That's it. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Well, anyway. I... I, you also had an interesting connection. There's another thing that I was eager to talk to you about. Um, you studied with uh, William Vacchiano sort of at the same time period as Tom. Maybe you can confirm or, or deny his feeling. He, he always had told me that the era where you guys had studied with uh, Vacchiano um, was significantly different in the type of teacher he was as far as like how harsh he was and not necessarily in uh, I mean, he had attributed so much of his playing to that, but uh, he said it was much harsher than the people that came later. So, like, way harsher than Russ Nevis got years later or 
any of those guys or Steve Burns or, or, you know, see, I, I stayed with Bill actually the, the, the four years before, because I, I think it was, I went right out of high school and Tom, Tom was about a year older than I. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I don't know if he'd already, but anyway, it was when he was at West Point. So this is like 60, 61 to 64 in that area. So I, I, I always hoped I would have a good, good day on the day I had a lesson with Bill. I never did in four years. And he gave 45 minute lessons. <clears throat> and I could tell how badly my lesson was going by how many cigarettes he smoked during the 45 minute period. I think I remember there was one time he smoked seven cigarettes I, and he smoked pell-mell. It took, it takes 10 minutes to smoke a cigarette. I, mean, I don't know how the hell he did that. <laughs> and anyway, he, he was so intimidating because not that he yelled at me necessarily, though there, there was a time in my last, my last season, I was playing that, that uh, you know, the Aaron Harris. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> There's one in G flat major, right? I mean, they're all violin studies. <clears throat> and I'm scuffling around and geez, I mean, just, <clears throat> he slapped his hand on the table and said, God damn it, I don't understand why you're having trouble with this. I said, well, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, there's like six flats. I mean, Jesus. He says, uh, guys like Mel Broyles and Teddy Weiss and Catala, they never had trouble with this. Why do you have trouble with it? And I was like, mm. and then he said, well, you don't have any talent. There's not much you can do. Man, I didn't open the door. I went out under, underneath. It wasn't until after I was out of school, I mentioned that to the colleague who was playing the ballet theater. And he, he'd say with the most, he said, he never said anything to me. I realized that was probably the biggest compliment he'd ever paid me. Right? I mean, he was comparing me with his, his most successful students at that time. But I mean, there were other signs. I mean, by halfway through my second year, I, I played extra trumpet with the New York Philharmonic. I mean, he had like 25 students at, at Juilliard. So, you know, but I, Everything was such a struggle, you know, because I mean, really, transposition was just, and he had a reputation, which I found was not exactly true, but that he could, he had the whole Sox book memorized in every key in Solfege. He probably had at least two dozen of them, right? So I'm like scuffling away, and he's like walking around the room, Solfege, which, I mean, geez, Freddie Mills figured out that, that out, though, because he knew that he gave. Bill gave the same etudes in the same sequence. So Neil, I heard this story about Neil Baum. Oh, if, if you're listening to this, Neil, I hope, hope I have it accurate. But Freddie taught you those etudes and you, you memorize them. So sure enough, Bill called them up in that sequence. And then one day Neil went in, he didn't have anything but the Sox book and Bacchiano picked one that he hadn't learned. <laughs> I guess things were not too cool then. <laughs> But I, I never, he never really, really yelled at me, except the, the first lesson, I mean, he had a way of disarming you immediately. And my name is misspelled about 50% of the time. And Vakiano taught himself like six other languages from reading the Bible, right? So I walk in, he says, hey, Schleuder, you that guy from Germany? And I said, no, sir, I'm from Southern Illinois, because that's the way I talked way back then. 
He said, did I hear your audition? I said, yes, sir. I, I, I remember because you had a Thai class one that had the emblem of the LeBlanc, which I played LeBlanc trumpet and there it is on. He said, I don't remember you at all. I mean, well, how do you start from there, right? <laughs> <clears throat> so he didn't like my mouthpiece. I was playing a 7C, right? I mean, that was the biggest mouthpiece I'd seen. He said, the only reason you got good range endurance is because you got a pea shooter mouthpiece. I said, is there something bigger than this? <laughs> So, and it also had the reputation for changing people's mouthpieces, right? I mean, that, that was part of his teaching technique. He would see how people could adjust. And, and if there was an issue, he used the mouthpiece for correcting it. Well, he didn't like the way I tongued. He didn't like my embouchure, didn't like the trumpet. Um, I mean, there was nothing I could do. I, I played a C major scale, page 59. I said, no, what? I said, what, what'd I do? So you you rush the last four notes. You got to subdivide. So that's that was, and I mean I know Tom did the the videos about Bachiana rules. He didn't Bachiana didn't say these are rules. He just said this is how you do it. I mean I guess that's a rule, right? But he didn't didn't couch it in those terms. He's I mean stylistically you do this this this. I mean the first thing he said it's still written on my Arvin book. It said eighth notes are always short, unless specifically marked otherwise. Quarter notes are long, 16th notes are long. I thought, what the hell is he talking about? But I mean, I, I learned what he was talking about. Now, and, that, that, that was the thing that, sorry to interrupt, but it was, that was the thing that Tom argued you guys got a bigger dose of than the generations that followed, right? That these kind of musical, um, yeah, what he called rules, but really it yeah, was. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I. Vakiana once told me he gave everybody the same thing, same routine, same sequence. He said, whatever they learned how to deal with that, that was up to them. So, in fact, I, with the mouthpiece thing, I went from a 7C to a 7B to a 5B to a 3C. And until I got to the 3C, everything improved. I mean, I had more range, more endurance. I mean, it was, I remember when I was playing that 5B, it was the first time I could play the last one of the Grand Canyon, playing the B, da, 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 up the F sharp. I mean, shit, that was pretty good, right? But the 3C, I absolutely could not, I mean, I tried for probably three months at least. And I all of a sudden I had no range, no endurance. I couldn't stand the sound, the intonation sucked. So I went in one night and I said, you got to give me something else. He said, oh, thank God. I said, what? He said, I haven't been able to stand since you started using it. I said, you gave it to me. Why didn't you say something? He said, I want you to find out for yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, we could have saved a lot of time. So I, I went to a two and a half C and I used that for the next 10 years. Right? In fact, I used to say, how come everybody gets a new mouth? He says, because that one works. I mean, you can't argue with that. I mean, I, 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 one of the conductors I enjoyed playing with was Klaus Tenstedt, who I've worked with mostly in Minneapolis. <clears throat> he would say things like, it must be. I mean, you can't argue with that, right? I mean, so it, it was, and I said, Bill gave 45 minute lessons. <clears throat> and Ronnie Anderson, who was my predecessor, he was getting his, his his masters when I was there. I used to have my lesson right after Ronnie. I mean, that, that was just 
mysterious yet. I mean, I'd, I'd hear, hear it like five minutes before my lesson and listen. I mean, I thought, oh, I got to follow this. I mean, I never heard him miss anything, right? Anyway, he, he was confronted by Bacchiano. He said, the catalog says you're supposed to have one hour lesson or two half hour lessons. You only get 45 minute lessons. Why is that? Bacchiano said, you haven't seen my book. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I look back, I mean, I it felt like it took me like, you know, 20 minutes to get through one etude, right? And I look back and I mean, I've got like like four pages of Arben, five uh, Stocksy book, two, two or three Charlie and a couple of top tones. I have no idea how I got through that. Right? And of course, his, I follow his mode of, of teaching that I never listen to anything a second time unless it's somebody, you know, we've been, uh, recital or have an audition that he wanted to be repertoire because he could tell whether I was learning anything, right? I mean, he started, you know, the Top Tones book, right? Yeah. He started with C major and he turned over to page 54, D sharp minor. Oh, <laughs> and then he says, now Schleuder, you got, you got to read this like C trumpet in six flats. I said, why would I want to do that? <laughs> that's, that's the way his mind works, see. But also, <clears throat> New York Philharmonic played Electra while, while I was in school. And Bill was into using D trumpet like probably 70, 80% of the time. So he, he played the whole piece on on. D trumpet. I remember he, he mentioned that Royals was, you know, there's seven trumpets in the electric, so Mel was playing extra on that. And Mel says, hey, how, how do you do that? I said, so, well, you know, yeah, we should do it like you're playing the A trumpet part on, on a C trumpet. <laughs> okay. So I get to Kansas City and we're going to do electric, and I just got in a brand new Martin D trumpet, which was a terrific horn. I thought, okay, if I can't do that, I'm going to do that. And there was one spot, and there was a lot of B flat in, in that, that part. There, there was one spot that was really sort of a knuckle buster. And I looked down at the bottom of the page, and in Bacchiano's handwriting, he'd written it out. <laughs> I thought, you son of a bitch. But also, that was also a teaching moment. See, I mean, the art of survival. What Tom found out, which I, I, I knew the Bacchiano was influenced a lot by Magere. You know, his mouthpiece was like the same shape rim, but the inside diameter was smaller. He gave me a Magere mouthpiece when I went to Boston right? with the <laughs> admonition. I'm only giving you this if you promise not to use it. I said, come <laughs> on, Bill, you know me better than that. So my first season with Colin Davis, we recorded La Mer and the Nocturnes. And I used that mouthpiece on that recording just for sentimental purposes. What I didn't know was that Bill, I knew he was from Portland, Maine. He went down to study with Major when he was in high school. And, and see, I mean, Bill and study with almost everybody at one point or another because <clears throat> Portland, Maine was like a resort area and, and every, all the, the great trumpet players and cornet players went there during the summer, their vacation. 
but he stayed with Klepfel, who was also a principal trumpet in, in the Boston Embassy before Magier. He stayed with Gustav Heim, who was also Magier's predecessor. In fact, I have the D trumpet, the best in D trumpet that Vacchiano got from Gustav Heim, and Heim got it used. That's what I heard. It's a fantastic horn, and Vacchiano used had a set of C slides for it, which I have no idea how he played that because I tried it. And it was like some sort of oriental scale. <laughs> <clears throat> but I know I could always tell when he was playing a D trumpet because at the top of Carnegie Hall, I mean, the sound was the biggest when he played the D. And and I, I used that, that instrument on one recording. We, when I went to Boston, it was the 100th anniversary and they had, there were a lot of commissions. And there was a piece by Panufnik. I think it was his eighth symphony or something. And I used the, the, the best in D on that. And, you know, it, it's, by the, by the time I, I mean, then I, I started playing Monette trumpets in 1983. And I, I know Mike mentioned that he had gone, after having a lesson with Tony Plo, he'd gone over to Tom's house. And I heard that that, that the first C trumpet that he got, Tom cut it down and made it into a D flat trumpet. <laughs> which may have caused a little bit of a falling out between him and Dave. I, I don't know. I, I never did find out. What... <laughs> anyway, there, there's so many overlaps, you know, of, of things that, that, that happened. I mean, it's because of Tom that I met Jean-Pierre Matez and Pierre Thibault. In fact, <laughs> I spent the af afternoon and evening at Thibault's house when Steve Burns was there because like, he used to go and like spend a, a month at a time. And I was staying at the, the, the uh, Paris Hilton, and Steve picked me up in a taxi and went out to, to Thibault's house. And I, I still have vague memories of that. In the course of the day, Thibault and I killed a whole bottle of scotch and must have smoked at least two packs of cigarettes. <clears throat> and at one point, this old elderly white cocker spaniel sort of waddled into the room because it was one of those golden colors. And I remember he said, be careful, she's very nervous. She said, okay, so I'm, I put my hand down, the dog is nose licking my hand, so I'm petting her. I, so we, we had dinner and we're getting ready. Thibault was gonna drive me back to the hotel. And as we're leaving, <clears throat> The dog is sleeping in his little bed there, and I reached out a pat and went, <laughs> bit me on the thumb. Oh I mean, I'm, I'm, I, my blood is, I don't know if people ever notice the blood in his car, but I'm like holding it like this, you know, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> it, it was so weird because the, the next, and I, I called, we had a doctor traveling with the orchestra, and I said, Do you have anything for a dog bite? He said, Where the hell have you been? <laughs> anyway, we show up, we have a rehearsal the next day at the Chatelet and Maurice Andre shows up. And I, I have this big bandage on my thumb. He says, oh, what happened to you? I said, Thibault's dog bit me on the thumb. He says, oh, you, the thumb in the mouth. <laughs> I guess they did not get along very well. Right? <laughs> I, I think it was like the following year, Steve was at Tanglewood. Right? And my, my younger daughter was, she was like, uh, probably about 15 or 16 at that time. And the studio where the, the trumpets had their class 
had like a, a screen door that swung in both both directions. And there'd been a kid in there having a guitar list or something, and he couldn't figure out. He had like two cases. He couldn't figure out. I was going to show him that the door moved either way, and I pushed it in, and it came back and like took took all the skin off the top of my knuckle. Yeah. So I, <laughs> Steve used to wear a bandana around his, his his neck, and he gave me that, and he went to get some ice, and he came back, and she says, she said what? Or she said what happened to you? I said well, I caught my finger. And just as Steve walks, I said, you're here this time too. And Steve turned beet red because he knew exactly the reference to the dog bite thing. <laughs> you, you, you can't make this stuff up, right? It's pretty great. I also, I went to visit Jean-Pierre Matez in 1979 for, when I lived in Minneapolis yet. And he had asked me to, to bring him, uh, I think I took like three or four Bach C trumpets, which they had a hard time getting in Europe. So I, I called Giardinelli and he, you know, picked out the best ones he had and sent it to me. And that Jean-Pierre paid me enough to that the difference between I paid what I paid Giardinelli actually covered my part of the trip. He was still going to sell them at probably 70% of what they cost in Europe and make a profit, right? <laughs> that that was uh that's, that's how I met Jean-Pierre Matez, who I I just we just corresponded a couple months ago, but about something else. But that's that's another. Now, let let me ask you something about that kind of kind of era and also training, because I I feel like how how much do you think that that kind of very harsh or not harsh, but like over the top uh, musical training, which is very positive in a way, like what you were explaining with transpositions I and all that. I've never been as uncomfortable in any orchestra setting, with no matter what conductor, as I could be in that forty-five minute lesson. So that. Was... <laughs> and and how much do you think that was like uh, Vacchiano or that era, even before, like even with Majer, like they they were living in a time where the absolute dominance of the conductor was way different than it's kind of unimaginable now, right? Do you think that that kind of training had something to do with with trying to yeah, keep your job? I, I think so. You know, I mean, there, there was, look, when I got to Julia, I, I have no idea what I what I want to do. I knew I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a band director. I mean, everybody said, well, you have to get a degree in music education because you can't make a living playing. Well, I mean, my, my teacher in St. Louis was, had been on staff at NBC and they had a staff orchestra and he, he was a top freelancer in St. Louis. He, you know, he taught privately, but in fact, I remember he, he got $5 or less than my, my previous teacher had offered to pay and it said, put your money where your sun don't shine. <laughs> but when I got to New York and, and I, I knew I didn't want to just play club dates. I'd been doing that since I was 15 years old. I thought, to break in the studio, you had to be able to improvise, which I found out you didn't. All you had to be able to do was read, you know, play whatever was on. The and symphony orchestras were not that that lucrative in those days. I got to New York in 1957. The New York Philharmonic was on strike. Hmm. I thought coal miners go on strike. I thought musicians were happy to have a job. <laughs> they they were striking. As I remember, it was for the 30 
38 week season and $150 a week minimum. I don't know where the, what what they were where they're starting from. But when I got to Kansas City, they had 24 week season, and the first first year was 97.50 a week. Wow. It went up to $100 a week the second season. So you know, and there there were people in in, in Kansas City who'd gone there with the idea that it was going to get improved, right? They had to like drive taxis or work for you know whatever the flower nursery, whatever they could during the off season because they all had started families too. So it wasn't until <clears throat> Ixom got started, which was about 1965, 66 in that area, that orchestras started communicating with each other, start hiring their own legal counsel and doing their own con uh, elective bargaining negotiations. And also the first time they became kind of full-time, right? Because the Philly Orchestra, as I understand it, was the first one, and that was in the 60s. I mean, it's... Well, I, I think I think Boston was probably the first. And, mm. and then, I mean, they referred to the big five. Right, right. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Cleveland. Cleveland was the first. They went to full-time in 1967, the year I joined there. And already they, you see, the, anytime there was ever a work stoppage with any orchestra in this country, all you ever heard about how greedy the musicians were, right? If the musicians hadn't been greedy and expanded their season and their livelihood and their fringe benefits, the administrative part of it wouldn't have been able to hire double or triple the amount of people on the stage. And the managing directors would not be making, you know, millions of dollars. Fleischmann <laughs> in, in LA was like the first million dollar manager that I know of. Right? <laughs> but they, you know, that that's that's that, that imbalance. I mean, it's you know, you're you're a great artist when you walk on the stage, but when you're in negotiations, you're a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I. That I was on the negotiating committee in Minneapolis, and it, it took its toll on me. I thought I could handle both, but the anxiety of being told what an incompetent piece of work you are during the daytime got somatized. And I mean, I I was I went through a period of wondering if maybe I should get out of this business again. But on the other hand, the Well, I, I don't know how the orchestras are going to recover now because it's it's a whole whole new ball game. During the, the crunch, you know, back in the early two thousands, orchestras took a big hit. Boston probably less than anybody else because mm -hmm. they had very conservative but very positive investments. And in fact, Boston had the largest budget except for the Metropolitan Opera when I got. To, to there in, in 1981, partly because of Tangwood, right? But the Pops was the cash cow, right? And that's that, That's what always, that's what, well, all the Pops concerts were sold out. In fact, it wasn't until <clears throat> the collective bargaining <laughs> went into effect. And George Zazowski was the first chairman of Exxon. He was the assistant concertmaster in Boston. In fact, he'd retired, I don't know how many years before, but he went on that, that tour, my first season to Japan and, and, and Europe, 
I mean, there was every day there was some like unbelievable crisis of, of travel or your bags. And Joyce said, I got thought we got rid of all this kind of shit years ago. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, they. Well, but th this was certainly not the type of orchestra that Vacchiano or Magier would have recognized. Like if if we were to bring them back today, it would it would be surprised at the kind of positive conditions in, right. in and, that and line the, of work. Uh, the salaries, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't know for absolute fact, but I've heard that that Chris Martin is making about a half million dollars. I mean, and and here in L.A. too, the the the. The salaries keep hiking and hiking, and uh... yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I've I've been retired uh, almost fifteen years, which is much more than half as long as I played at the orchestra. But um, yeah, I mean, I I think the I was in the top five salary people for about a year, and then somebody else you know knocked me out of that. But that that was like probably less than half of what the, the highest paid principal players are now. And there, there are orchestras that it specified the percentage that you know the principal can will make over scale or whatever. But that that that's ironic because the generally managers don't like never like to talk about principals. I mean, uh, uh, percentages as part of the salary. I mean, when I, when I went to Milwaukee and even after playing what was probably the most disastrous audition I ever played. I mean, I. I couldn't even play the stuff I picked because they, there was no list back in those days. But that that was they had a 28 week season, a hundred dollar a week minimum. And when they called me, the manager said, "We would like to offer you a job." And what what sort of salary? You I said, "Well, I, I want double scale." He said, well, wait a minute. He comes back like 10 minutes later. I'm on hold. He says, "Would you accept 200 dollars a week?" I said, "Isn't that double?" He said, "Well, we don't talk about that way." <laughs> so. He, they, it's a whole other world, you know. And and I was, I was the Exum delegate from Boston for God on nine or ten years, and it was the same issues over and over of of sort of equalizing things. The Chicago Symphony, I mean, they're those members are sort of like they could all be in the Teamsters Union. Have like a beer truck driver mentality when it comes to negotiation. They had this is way way back. I don't know what it's like now, but they had the lowest legal fees because they presented their their proposal to the manager like in May or June. They said we'll see you the last week of the season. They didn't have meetings like every week to like nitpick over the laundry list as, as Lenny Lee would use. I remember one year. <clears throat> Henry Vogel was the head of, of the Chicago Symphony, the, the managing director, what, whatever the, the title was. And it was when insurance costs were going up. And he came into this meeting and said, we might have to consider the possibility that maybe the members will have to pay part of the, the premium. The chairman could say, screw that, we're out of here. I mean, they, they not only did the strike only last about two days, they got more than they ever asked for in the first place. I mean, it just totally shell-shocked the man. <clears throat> I'm sure it hasn't been like that since. But in Cleveland, you know, <clears throat> when I went there, they had 
a manager, an assistant manager, personnel manager, assistant personnel manager, and about five people working in the office. They used to joke that, that Zell even licked the envelopes and the stamps. <laughs> yeah, that's very different than now. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, as far as, you know, job security or anything, I never played with Reiner. So I asked Bacchiano once how he would compare Reiner and Zell. He said, well, with Reiner, you know, if he didn't like something he did, he'd just fire you on the spot. He said, Zell would keep you around for 10 years and torture you. <laughs> and that, that was extremely accurate because I, I went through a situation with, with, with Zell. It was initiated by one of my colleagues and I, one of two people there fought Zell and one, but then he died. So I, I never figured whether he, he died too soon or too late because he, he was probably trainable, but you know, anyway, that, that was, yeah, that, so the, the jobs did, did change dramatically, but a lot of things were, I mean, Vakiana taught at Juilliard like 60 years, right? When I went to Boston, we're talking about, you know, like 40 years ago now, right? <clears throat> but I, I decided that I was, I was not going to make less than $60 an hour at whatever school I taught at. <clears throat> I got it from New England Conservatory. Found out Bill was making $30 an hour from Juilliard. I said, Bill, that's insane. I said, Colombian was making $100 an hour when I left school. I said, I mean, you, you should be making like $200 an hour. He said, ah, Julia, I hired anybody that walks in off the street. <laughs> so there was, there was this pecking. I mean, I, I went to Juilliard rather than the conservatory, even though New England had accepted me. They'd often, without ever hearing me play a note, <clears throat> they offered me a $200 scholarship. Then my teacher in St. Louis, Eddie Brower, said, you know, if you can get in with, with Vacchiano, that get his, his blessing, you know, you'll probably have a career assured. Well, I, I didn't know whether I had his blessing, but they did give me $50 more scholarship. Now, I know that's, that sounds like you don't even know what I'm talking about. The entire tuition was $700 a year. Yes, it's a lot of money. And, <laughs> I mean, if everything else is... Well, it's probably more than that now, but it, it was like when it was 10 times more, I mean, a loaf of bread instead of being 20 cents was $2. A quart of milk instead of being, you know, 75 cents, it was, you know, seven high. Except tuitions, right? And I think most of it went, <clears throat> well, in colleges, I mean, the, the, the highest paid faculty member is the athletic director, right? I mean, do we have our priorities screwed up or what i mean they, they often make more than the president of the university yes the president of the university's job is to fundraise right to, yeah. to hit the alumni you know so but by that regard i mean tuition should maybe be ten thousand dollars right yeah plus it really it really flips it, it creates a, an extra problem when something costs that much it's about natural that uh, students will start thinking of, of it as a service that they're paying for. And when yeah. you do that, you severely limit the ability of teachers to be a little bit more strict about standards in their own education. So even though it 
gives the appearance, for example, that Harvard is still as competitive as it was in the 90s, 80s, and 70s, it sort of isn't in a way. Because the standard of education, it's as competitive to get in, but the standard of education offered there, just by by the cost of the education, is much lower than it used to be. People don't get, because, you know, it's so important for them to have graduation rates, for example, which was not something important to them up until, like, the early 2000s. Right. Well, I mean, I I never took a loan. The last loan that was involved, my, my father, when he bought a new trumpet for me in, in 1955, 56. He'd already been disabled for like three or four years and he had to take a loan to buy the trumpet, which was probably only maybe $300 if, if that. So it only took me like two years, really out of school to, to get back whatever it cost me. You know, cause I, I lived for my first year, I lived on $20 a week. $10 for a room and, and $10 for food. And now, I mean, string players could recoup their tuition probably in two seasons if they joined a, you know, an orchestra. That's another bit of irony that a lot of string teachers won't allow their students to play in the orchestra. They're all either going to be great soloists, like Itzhak Perlman, or they're going to be in the Juilliard Quartet. And that's, that's a little bit of a fantasy, you know. I mean, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of brass players, you know, are, there are a lot more quintets now than there were like 60, 70 years ago, right? I mean, when I went to New York, the New York Brass Quintet, that was it, right? Then the Canadian Brass started, and that changed the whole venue because they started having that written. Then the Empire came in and others, you know. So, I mean, I, I we had, Ensembles within the orchestra, like in Kansas City, there was a brass quartet. We played young audience concerts. In Milwaukee, I think that was, I think that may have been part of the season, but I, I think we also got something extra as, as a young audience. Um, Cleveland, you being the year round season, there was, you know, no, in fact, back in those days, when you went to a, another orchestra, you weren't allowed to play anything outside of the, the orchestra. I mean, that's the way they allowed imports, right? To protect the local people who weren't being hired, mostly because they didn't have the training for that sort of thing, right? But um, the, a, a, lot of, a, lot has, a lot of things have improved drastically, you know, since I started out. But management always wants to revert back <laughs> to earlier times, right? Like, they went through a period of, of like non-confrontational, you know, and I remember Phil Sipser who did a lot of negotiations for, for orchestras. He's the one that turned around the pension fund for every orchestra in the country, like in a non-contributory basis. But he also, his, his other big client was the Teamsters Union in Chicago. So that's the way he approached uh, the, the musicians, management lawyers. But he said, if you give this much, next negotiation is going to be this much, it's going to be this much, you know, and that, that maybe he, he would sort of <laughs> believed in the theory, if you give an inch, you, you lose a mile sooner or later. But <clears throat> when 
when I got to Boston, um, they, although they had a year-round season, <clears throat> and they had, like, it was sort of equal between whatever the Minnesota was of, of New York, Boston, Chicago. Boston was the, the, the fountainhead initially of, of getting, you know, setting the standards. By the time I got there, it was like, whosoever contract expired soonest, right? That would enter, would try to equal that. But for instance, they, I started mentioning that the, the pops until probably, I don't know when exactly, maybe, maybe the early seventies, they had, they played all of May and June, seven days a week. And then they played two weeks on the Esplanade, which overlapped with Tanglewood, right? So Tanglewood would start with Haydn, Mozart, Bach, you know, overlap, and they'd trade off. When they finally negotiated a day off, they had to have another orchestra because these concerts were already sold out, right? So the, there's a Boston Pops Esplanade Orchestra, right? Which most people in Boston don't even know about, that there are two orchestras. Because when they renovated the Statue of Liberty and they had the unveiling on the 4th of July, whatever year that was, I don't even remember anymore. They invited the Boston Pops to play for that, right? This big brouhaha went up in Boston. How can we not have the Boston Pops on the Esplanade on the 4th? They hadn't had the Boston Pops on the Esplanade probably for 15 years or more. <laughs> and in fact, they were still having, they were having this running joke because it wasn't a joke. I mean, it, it, during the feeder years, the Boston Symphony players didn't like it, but they liked the money, right? <laughs> because Fiedler was, I mean, they were recording every week and they were doing like TV evening at Pops at least one night a week. So they, they were making really good money. Right? They were working for it. They didn't particularly like working with Fiedler. You know, they used to say, look, if you don't behave yourself, Arthur, we're going to follow you. Well, you know, then John Williams came in and he changed the repertoire somewhat and everybody's grousing about that. But when it came time, <clears throat> to let the Esplanade Orchestra do some of the electronic stuff, then all the BSO people went, oh no, we gotta have that. But they, it was the Esplanade Pops that was touring, but nobody ever saw Esplanade, they saw Boston Pops, right? So this, they started making the Boston Esplanade Pops wear white jackets, whereas the Boston Pops were either gray or blue. I mean, <laughs> it sounds silly, even my telling it, right? Yeah, but they this this was still a, a a fight, you know. When after I got to Boston, and they they were, you know, they were going to hire an arts attorney to to get all the wording straightened out. And I, I still remember the, the chairman of the committee said, you know, it's it's going to cost uh, some money. So I said, how much is it going? <laughs> well, it could cost two hundred dollars a man. Oh, no, no. this was like the middle of August, right? So I said, look, in two weeks time, everyone's going to get a $50 a week raise, right? That's in the contract. So pretend you didn't get your raise for a month, you paid for the attorney. Oh yeah, pass unanimously. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Boston was sort of a, a mess at that time, right? Right before you came, there was a lot of, 
And these stories just kind of confirm what I had heard about uh, how much like in fighting for petty details there had been in the city of Boston in general in the arts and music scene. Yeah, and they it's sort of coming out now that a lot of, a lot of comedians they're they're like the, the soothsayers of the, the world. You know, they we I, I live by Bill Maher and and. Uh, and John Oliver and you know, the other, sure. Stephen Colbert. But Boston is is a racist city. I mean, that's that's where they had a lot of problems when they started busing and and that's and symphony orchestras have always been um, an issue for minority players, black specifically, because that's not part of their culture, right? So and and. The, the thinking is that black musicians are always jazz players, right? That's why Winton made such a, a incredible splash when he, they found out they could do both. A lot of, but in my experience, I used to have jazz majors, you know, study with me a couple of years at, at the conservatory, and I've, I've realized over the years that the jazz players are much better educated as musicians than the so-called classical players are. I mean, the, the kids that started with me, they knew not all their major minor scales and arpeggios, they knew all their modes, right? They they knew stuff I didn't even know, right? So I learned, I learned from them. But when I said, you know, that's that's a diminished seven chord, they didn't look at me cross-eyed like I was talking some foreign language, you know? Like, oh yeah, okay, okay. So it, it's, there's this sort of, it's an unawareness as much as anything. Well, well, Tom, Tom used to say that if if he would wish for a world where classical musicians knew as much about their theory as jazz musicians, and where jazz musicians, because this became kind of a trope, would be as obsessed with uh, you know their instrumental particularities as classical musicians, and then you would have kind of the best, uh, which is kind of where Winton shines because he had that but but uh, it's so true that classical musicians i mean i i i went to school and all the theory classes and everything i mean they were fine but there was no uh connection between how the classes that i was taking could possibly aid me in my uh, understanding of music and i got that later on in life from people like tom where he was like you know actually knowing where a cadence is turns out to be very important kid that's that's what bachiano he he linked it all together see but he didn't say, now we're going to tie this in with this. It just did it, right? It, I mean, it, when he talked about articulation, for instance, if <clears throat> we have four sixteenths and the first two are, are slurred, the, the end of the second one has to be the same shape as the ones that are detached, right? If you have two groups, consecutive groups of two notes slurred, like the ballerina dance, if it's with the pulse, the second one is long. Right? If it's across the pulse, it's like the eighth Arban character is then it's short. I mean, Vacchiano seemed to be the only person I ever came in contact with that knew about that. Right? Some string players usually knew it because of the way the, the, the bow had to be, be right. articulate those. Well, that's the argument of, that, that came from Magier, right? 
in theory. That's what Tom used to say because he was a viola player in the right. Paris Conservatory. Oh, so he got that exposure in part as part of his training. Mm-hmm. But that's also why Bacchiano said, you know, if you want to learn about ensemble or style, go listen to string quartets. Right. So I mean, even even after I, I was in Boston, very often I was the only brass player at string quartet concerts. Right? I mean, I was married to a violinist, you know, so she we were married over 50 years before she passed away. But but that that was um, yeah, I mean, brass players spend too much time worrying about flexibility and range. And, I mean, that's that's I'm the book I've been writing for over forty years is is going to be published this month. Sometime. Ah, good. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did did you ever happen to read the the book about the Boston Symphony? I did, and that wonderful. <laughs> chapter <laughs> yeah uh, do, do you want to talk a little bit about that in concert yeah ironically carl vigeland who wrote that book is the one who's publishing mine ah very cool he's not doing his own publishing and it's in fact the last line of, of in concert is that i'm writing a book about trumpet playing <laughs> here we are you know 30 years after it was, that was published right but yeah i mean it's it's mostly text um there, there's enough etude books out there it's it's the title of it is indirection like i have i have a, a oh wonderful very cool and and like you said it's not a a, a method book which is positive in a way uh well, it, the only there's a few etudes like for the when I talk about tonguing and, and that sort of thing, because that that that's stuff I got from from two of my teachers that started with Joe Gustad, who was like the guru of the Midwest, right? And ironically, like all the jazz players lived in East St. Louis, and some in St. Louis studied with with Joe. I mean, he was people always studied with him if they had some issue, right? Like Dizzy Gillespie studied with him. Uh, Miles Davis studied when he would actually used a Gustat mouthpiece. Clark Terry, you know, he must say because he was the one that sent those guys to study with Joe. <clears throat> but basically, what what this what I'm dealing with is a conceptual approach. I'm trying to get well. The, the subtitle is on becoming a better musician and trumpet player in a conceptual process. I'm trying to get people to learn how to think rather than what to think. And that's 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 how I've approached playing because that's the way I was taught, and that that was. I, mean, I remember, in fact, I even saying there that, you know, my I get think it was while I was still at Juilliard, if I could figure out how to combine what I had learned collectively from the, the four teachers I'd had at that time, including Bacchiano, that would make a better format, a, a framework for learning. But the other thing. You know that starting with Vacchiano, a big part of that was going to hear him play every week. And colleagues, other students would say, I don't know what's the matter with them. Last week I couldn't play a note short enough, now I can't play a note long enough. Well, if they'd gone to the concert, they wouldn't know last week they were playing Stravinsky and this week they were playing Bruckner. I mean, <laughs> duh. <clears throat> there, there is a 
I, I was in school when Bill Russo wrote the symphony that the last one went apart from Maynard. Right? So I think it's called the Titan Symphony. I, I mean, being a little bit, uh, I guess, comparing himself to Mahler, maybe, I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, I, Maynard and I <laughs> talked about that many times, but it, it, he said the first rehearsal, he got, finally got through this, my spot and Bernstein said, yeah, it's good sound, you know, not good intonation, you know, good phrasing, but it's marked mezzo forte. And Maynard said, before I could say anything, Bacchiano said, Lanny, that was his mezzo forte. <laughs> Maynard said, I could have gone over and kissed him on the spot. He said, I, I don't know what, what was it? I mean, Maynard was like, you know, 30 years old or something then. <laughs> but also, you know, up to that time, if Bacchiano came in school, heard of his students practicing in the upper register, he'd chew him out. After that week, if you couldn't play a high F at any time, you got a smaller mouthpiece. <laughs> I mean, but these these were. I mean, he was a very uh, active thinker. I, I think that that's something that. Um, I guess let me ask it this way: you you talked about the context of your audition, even for Boston and and that era, and, and I remember Tom talking to me about his audition for the LA Phil, and it's something similar. I mean, he came in a day after the actual auditions, and he played things from memory. Uh, they just, you know, they were like, oh can you play something classical and he out of his memory bank played some brahms but it wasn't like like as packaged as it is today and you say this a similar thing is i'm not i'm not i'm not going to prepare a list you know what i play like um let, let me ask you about today and the context of how auditions are being handled today because you, you, we were we're talking about like classical musicians not being as capable musically as jazz musicians for example uh, do you think that has something to do with kind of the the reward system, like like our value system in the classical music world has become, you know, if you can play this book, you can get a job versus if you're a trained musician, you'll be a good artist. Do you think that that, that has an effect on the way you know things are being handled now or the type of players that we're getting in in, in we're, groups we're, we're victims of of the recording world partly i think mike talked about that a little bit mm. um and even before there was digital you know where you you don't hear it. there's i was part of rec some recording sessions that i don't know where they got the result you know, the final copy from because it never happened in the session, right? <laughs> For instance, we, when I was in Cleveland, we recorded the Bruckner Eighth, right? The last movement, and we were playing rotary trumpets. They, the, the orchestra owned two, two Monka B flats and two made by a company, B A R T H, Bart, but I call them Barf. They were really. <laughs> dogs <laughs> anyway the second trumpet at the recapitulation on it on a g sharp on the on, on a b flat trumpet, ba -da, ba -da, ba -da, ba -da, ba -da, we must have been done 20 takes <laughs> and they they sound i think there are 17 of those and somewhere they managed to but that was like when they're still cutting a piece of tape with with yeah. the razor blade right so i mean that's but that you know when when you listen to recordings before they were super edited I don't, they, they reissued 
like the performance of Zarathustra in Boston. It's the one that Majer played. I mean, it's hard not to want to play it that way, right? It's, it's like perfect. There's there's a in in Pines of Rome, Glenn's played. I mean, I have to like work hard not to miss it that way because like, yeah, that, that made it different, right? So it, it's in many cases, it's become like that where they hire the person that doesn't miss any notes. That person very often does not end up getting tenure because they have no awareness of, of ensemble. Their intonation isn't so good. They, you know, they don't blend with it. That's why when, when they started in Minneapolis with the first orchestra that did that, that the final round, I played with the, or, with the orchestra, right? And I know that if I, in a, it was two different people that, I mean, I had to go back a second time because somebody else came in. But if I hadn't done it that way, I wouldn't have gotten the job. But again, that, that's, I, I don't know, by this time I'd had like 10 years of experience of playing an orchestra. So, there's, there's a lot of things that, that have to be learned on the job rather than, you know, that and, and practicing. <clears throat> In fact, that's the summer before I went to Juilliard, I, I was going <laughs> to, it was a Brandt etude. I can't remember which one it was, but I, I was going to perfect it before I got to New York. Right? And if I miss anything, I was going to play the whole etude another time. Shit, I was up to like 120 repeats. And I said, this ain't gonna happen. That's when I, I discovered when I was 18 that perfection was not on my horizon. Right? So if, if someone plays a perfect audition, that, well, I had a student in Minneapolis who after like two or three months of studying with me, I said, as we heard the concert the week before. He said, no, the week before that, no. I said, don't you go to any concert? He said, well, when you first came, I went to Auburn, I never heard you miss anything, so I stopped going. <laughs> I said, you weren't paying attention because I've never played a concert in my life when I haven't missed something, right? And of course, when I went to Milwaukee, all I ever heard was, you heard of Bud Hurst, the event, I never missed a note. I said, I've heard Bud miss a note. You have. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's... In recording, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's but also like what what does that say i mean what i wonder is like if the goal is perfection what does that say about the care taken for the music itself i i i mean i don't i don't imagine that when strauss or mahler or beethoven wrote a single note perfection was at the forefront of their imagination and getting that to come forth yeah i, I think it, it as long as they got the effect <laughs> In fact, there, there was um, all through Mahler, it's written, Nick Island, Nick Schleppen, right? And most conductors will, if it says Nick Island, then they, they make sure they keep moving. If it says Nick Schleppen, you know, they make sure they don't slow. Leinsdorf, guest conductor, when I was still in Cleveland, and he said, it doesn't mean anything except you keep going at the same tempo. He said, you have to understand the orchestras that Mahler was conducting were always rushing or dragging. And he'd write, yell out, you got it, you His apprentices would write it into the score, right? 
said it was the same thing with the NBC Symphony when <clears throat> Frank Miller, who ended up in Chicago, was principal cello. And Cassini is asking for more and more. And Miller said, but Maestro, it has five Ps in the part. And Tassini says, you have to understand that Italian orchestras can only play from mezzo piano and mezzo forte. So if they want it really loud, they write five Fs, or they want it really soft. So Lionsdorf says, you have to remember who these composers were composing against. <laughs> so you know, that's, you know, when, when somebody says, you know, that's, that's mezzo forte. I, I always said, you want it louder or softer? I mean, that, that, I don't have a dial that sets it on mezzo forte, right? The other, <clears throat> I found in many cases, if the conductor was doing something that you didn't, weren't quite sure what he was doing, I mean, you would add a little intensity to the sound and then it'd be too loud. So, and I've had conductors say, you know, so I, I just take the intensity out Play the same dynamic volume, so but they don't. Not everybody re responds to timbre, right? In fact, very often when when people mistake intonation for color, right? Boulez is the only conductor I ever played with who knew about not only did they have perfect pitch, but he knew about just intonation. So I learned right of spring with him. Right? He came and he was rehearsing. For intonation with like second bass clarinet and contrabassoon, I said, who can even recognize what the fuck the pitch is, right? But I mean, that I don't know if you have that he recorded it again, but that first recording of Rite of Spring, it's like, like a tapestry. You can hear and see every thread and every color, right? So the, the beating part, that was no issue with him, right? So I mean, I, every time I played it, I didn't. I never worried about it. I mean, I, I, I should have kept a log of how many conductors acid I'd say because they were screwing up or something else. But, but again, you know, you, the number of conductors and they're the ones who get the, the big bucks and they're supposed to be, you know, have the reputation on that. The ones that I worked with that really seem to have something special, I can count on one hand. I, I, you can't imagine how many people I've talked to that have had real careers that say exactly the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, Kubek de Burgos was one who, he had like, I don't know, something like 1,200 pieces. I didn't even know there were 1,200 pieces, but I mean, in his repertoire at any time, he, if he had to like come, they you could always get him to come in and sub if he wasn't working somewhere else. No matter what, he never changed the program because he knew whatever the piece was. He found so many mistakes in parts that pieces he'd played hundreds of times, right? That's, that's the sort of, that, that was the type of conductor that I respected and admired. It wasn't somebody that knew the top line, right? And, and, and that there's so many, well, they made a big deal of Mazel when he went into Cleveland, they had a photographic memory. <clears throat> I left just as he was coming in as music director, but he was like, they, since they'd been touting that, I guess there was a part of it. He had a roster on, on his stand when he came back to guest conduct. He was calling everybody Mr. This, Mr. That. 
Al Schmitter was the third horn, so he had a little trouble with Schluter and Schmitter because he was but he 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 was called like Mr. Marcellus, Mr. Gosney, Mr. And he came to Bloom and he said, Mike, Mike <clears throat> and slides out of something. He said, Mike, he said, Are you talking to me? He said, Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I know your name is Myron, but uh, but yeah, da, 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 da. so he goes on a little bit more, Mr. Gosney. And he said, Mike again. Mike said, the name is Mr. Bloom. <laughs> and my reaction was, this was when, when Chuck Kowalowski went to Boston as principal, but I knew that Mike had auditioned for him. Either he got the Boston job or he's gone over the edge. Right? But I found out what happened was that the night before there'd been a big reception and Mike had already been in the orchestra like for you know, 15, 20 years, something. And when the chairman of the board was introducing Mike to Mazel, and he was going to shake his hand, Mazel turned his back and walked away. So, you know, it, and it, I mean, if, if Mike was going to try a different mouthpiece, he'd have to go and play it for Zell before the rehearsal. I mean, it, it, that, that, that relationship was, right? But on the other hand, I mean, Zell's one really, really outstanding thing was that he could, adjust balance and tempi for the environment, right? So if he played something in, in, in Salzburg, he might do it differently in, in Paris or whatever. But, but he had his, his craziness too. He had this thing of that distance made things late, right? Well, <clears throat> I found out when, you know, when he said things were late in the brass, we were already late from where I was sitting. I mean, I was like bunk. And I I still remember that this was like 1967. We'd already played the Sibelius second in Salzburg. We're playing in Edinburgh. We have having rehearsal, right? And they started, you know, no, 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 it's perfect, right? Zell stops it. Woodwinds are late. They start again, and woodwinds are perfectly together, but like one quarter ahead of the strings. I mean, it was like Charles Ives meets John Sibelius. <laughs> I'm, I'm already like ducking down below the stand. I figured this is going to be one of those volcanic eruptions, right? They finish that section, and, and Zell is very insecure. If he he always had to have a backup plan. Like if he wanted to fire somebody, he'd fire two people so he could trade one off against the other. I mean, how Michigan is that, right? If he said something musically, he had to substantiate it with the concert master and the principal viola. Right? So that time Raphael Druin was the concert master and, and uh, when he said Woodwinds are late, he looks down at Raphael, he's like, Abe hey, Scarnet, the principal viola wouldn't play that game. He just looked at his shoes. So he finished that section. I mean, it really was like Bob Marcellus, Prince Brooklyn, and stuff said, How's that, Ray? If you don't like that, Abe, okay, and sat down. <laughs> Zell conducted the restoration with his head in the stand. <laughs> if Bob had said, Maestro, how was that? Do you like that? That would have caused the volcanic eruption. So there's, I never could do what some of my colleagues learned that if the conductor said something really stupid, you just smile and nod and do it the same way. I'd always say, but you know, I think that's why I, I got a reputation for 
fighting with conductors, and I, I really didn't. I mean, I, I, I figured it was my job to, to interpret whatever they're doing. And if they don't know what the hell they're doing, I, I can't do my job, right? So, but I, yeah, I don't know if I the question, probably not, but anyway, it's, it's, all, it's all interrelated. It's no, of course, to... this is great. This is how, how I like it, where it just goes everywhere. <laughs> but uh, speaking of that, like you just said, uh, you had colleagues that would either ignore the conductor and just do whatever they were going to do anyway. And also people like you that would actually want to talk about it. And I, 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 you're not alone in that kind of mentality. I, I feel like that's less of and less of a thing now. Uh, first of all, I feel like a lot of people feel like they have no agency in the orchestra. Uh, uh, or that it's not their job to know anything about it, or conversely, they think that there's no way, first of all, no way to have the conversations, that, but the, the second thing that they, they're not particularly invested in it. They they feel like, like I mean, I've seen this a lot, like, it, it's not even like uh, they feel demeaned and they've been beaten down. I, I've seen a lot of musicians that just don't, frankly, don't care. There's I no think, fire for I think that. String players probably suffer from that more than others because they're 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 part of the the unit and they'd rather be playing string quartets or whatever. So mm -hmm. I mean, my response always was go out and you know play the string quartet. Also, I found out and this you know I I could never really get away with saying this in in real life, but you know. <laughs> I found out, you know, when when I started, out, there were no shields. You know, mm -hmm. people didn't put in earplugs, right? But you know, there were some strange acoustic environments too. But I found in the like I was I was in five different orchestras <laughs> for the forty five years, right? That my colleagues' sensitivity to loud volumes was in direct proportion to their boredom level. Because many times, if we have a Leinsdorf or a Bernstein or a Tenstedt who's like got everybody cranked up, invariably, and this happened in several orchestras, one of my string colleagues would say, boy, the brass just sounds so mellow, so well blended. It just, I said, I'm working my ass off to keep up with you guys now that you decide to participate. Of course, that would depend <laughs> on you. On the other end, I mean, I remember I was in the Milwaukee Symphony. We played like a, it was a high school auditorium or gymnasium or something. And really, I mean, my bell is like here by the principal clarinetist. We're doing Shostakovich fifth, right? Joe, we ended up playing together in Minneapolis also, but this, this was Milwaukee, like 1964, I guess it was, 65. He turned around after he says, my brain is bleeding. I said, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, no, 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 look, I mean, that's, it's what you got to do. I mean, I don't expect you to play pianismo because it's, a, you know, but on the other hand, you know, they have a, a bucket of, of foam <laughs> earplugs backstage at Symphony Hall. In other words, do absolutely nothing, right? They have the plastic shield, which Art Bonet, the physicist from Cleveland, who I worked with, 
I once asked him about that. He said, it's more of a psychological aid than anything. He says, because if sound only went in one direction, it might help, but it's actually actually the funnel. He says, they're getting more because it, it comes back and it's, it's all right there. So again, you know, I, I always say reality is subjective and that's, I, I know that I sat next to Timpani probably for the, the largest percentage of my professional career. If I knew something was loud, I could literally shut it out. It's like those people that walk on hot coals or spikes or whatever. If there was a new piece that I didn't know, I mean, I, I ironically, I, you know, when I first, I have hearing aids now, but when, first time I had, went to an audiologist, figured that hearing, hearing loss would be in this ear. That was the left ear. It was the trombones <laughs> who got me. <laughs> but that, that was one of the big fights in, in Boston at, that Ozawa said, oh, you must not play so loud. I said, if I have to do that partly because if the trombones don't do what I'm doing and they don't hear it, I have to play louder. Because if, if you say something and get that worked out. So even after the arbitration, he said, you have to be careful about it. I said, I can't as long as I'm sitting in front of it. So I came back after intermission, they had us in a straight line which put the horn section into orbit, because now we're close. <laughs> so I mean, these, these are issues you can't write about, you can't even talk about. And, and it's only when, you know, people, when people came aware of workplace injuries, right? One of my colleagues in Boston filed a complaint with OSHA about the noise level on stage, not the volume, the noise level. So they came in, they put microphones like in front of, you know, on the back of the person in front of me. We're doing Prokofiev's Sixth Symphony, right? That's not a very quiet piece in a lot of spots. <clears throat> the result after a two and a half hour rehearsal, they get all the ratings. They spread that out over a normal eight hour work day. So on that basis, it's not harmful, right? But again, you know, it's, I, I used to say, you know, such and such, like such and such. No, it's all the same shit, just different shovels. <laughs> so, you know, let, let me let me uh, let me pivot a second here. But let, let me ask you something. It, it's kind of related, though. What you you I've heard in other interviews, you listened to a lot of music. So, I mean, even though the irony of what we're talking about, the recording era uh, damaging some of kind of the innovation and 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 artistic making in in musicians and i would venture to say conductors as well because they don't have to be as educated anymore they just listen to music uh but what you were also probably in the first like group of musicians that was able to buy records right and and you you listened to a lot of music from what i understand or you still do presumably well, ironically i i never had a phonograph until after I was married. Mm. So, I mean, I think I attribute that part of why I never learned how to improvise or, or play jazz because I, I, I didn't have any way of listening to Dizzy or Miles or any. I mean, I, I, Harry James was sort of the idol back in you know, my youth, right? And I mean, I, I certainly you know, got my job. I mean, I, his recordings of the, I, I had to like 
sweep the, the, the floor of the music store like every morning on my way to school. That was sorry, I wrecked, uh, reimbursed them for, for the, the teacher not charging me for lessons. They had, they had like 78, right? I mean, nobody even remembers what those things are. Anymore. Of Harry James, his, his trumpet blues and, and, and his concerto that he wrote, plus Horace Staccato and Fly of the Bumblebee. I probably wore the, the groove all the way through the record. And the, but I mean, that was just, you know, so exciting to hear all that. And, you know, and, and Mendez was like, you know, becoming terrified. I, I was never a big fan of Mendez. I mean, he he had you know unbelievable technique, but there are people that played a lot of notes. And I, I my theory was that, in fact, my high school band director said either either develop a lot of technique, a lot of virtuosity, or a beautiful sound. <laughs> and it's always been my theory that those who don't have much sound play a lot of notes, because then you can't tell. In fact, the first time I went to Dijon to do a class for for, uh, uh, for you know, it was all brass. That's how I met the, the group from Brazil and what started all that. But kids, they had students from, from Germany, from France, from Spain, Italy. He came in with pieces of music that were black. I mean, I'd never seen these things before. I say, okay, let's try the slow move. No, I haven't looked at the slow movement. Took me about probably a day and a half before I realized if they played a slow movement, they'd have to pay attention to how bad their sound was, how the sucked, their intonation sucked. They had no idea about phrasing or dynamics or color. So that that's that's part of it. It's it's a little bit of a camouflage, right? So I I never I never had a lot of fingers. I mean I. I, I played, you know, different cornet solos. And in fact, I, I made a CD of all the solos I played for contests. I don't, I don't know whether you... Yeah, I've I, heard it, yeah. I, I put two record companies out of business, so I, I, I know Amazon <laughs> sells. But, but that's... my. In fact, I, in this book, I, I define technique as how you play one note and how you get to the next one. It's not how many you play. That's, that's virtuosity, right? And even with, in the virtuosity, you still have to have some sense of, of, of shape, you know, of, of what, what this phrase is doing, rather than just playing. I, <clears throat> I met someone who had collected like old recordings of cornet solos, like from, cylinder, from Edison cylinders, right? Wow. And there were a lot of guys that played just a shitload of notes, right? Not one ounce of music. Right? It was only, it was only Herbert Clark, and Gustav Heim, who was also you know in that cornet period, who played with any kind of sense of phrasing or nuance or music. Right? <laughs> where where was it? We I was playing. Oh, I. This was also in, in Cleveland. We're, the last week of the season was they they started doing ballet. <clears throat> they brought in New York City ballet a couple of times. They, they, but once one year, I think it was my last season, they brought in the Harkness with um, um, 
Sam Krakmalnik was the conductor. Mm. His brother had been concertmaster of the, the, of the Philadelphia Orchestra for many years. Anyway, they were doing the complete Firebird, which the Cleveland Orchestra had never played because Zell did the Firebird, but it's always the suite. And there's a lot of music in the complete that's not in the suite, right? Even some of the same music is like different phrasing or different. And there's one slot, I can't remember anymore what exactly where it was, but the cellos were like, I did it to you. <laughs> and Sam stopped and said, hey, what, are you, what are you doing? This is music. You're supposed to enjoy it. Did anybody ever tell you that? <laughs> and I said, not here. <laughs> so, but I mean, that's. But that's a profound statement, actually. Especially, yeah. I mean, I, I think especially uh, <clears throat> now. I mean, it's not just now. I think it's been a number of, of decades, probably, since since this has taken hold fully. Yeah, um, but and and the recording is partly responsible for that because you you've heard more and more. I, I I hated recording. I mean that that for me was blood money. Even even when I did my own CDs, I'd be like halfway through, I think, what the hell am I doing to myself? I mean. Because my whole approach to playing was process, not product. Mm. And when you're recording, you try not to miss anything. In fact, that the recording of Petrushka that we did in Minneapolis, the ballerina dance that's on the recording is one shot. There's no splice in it. Because we did a take, and like one note didn't speak. We did another take, and a different note didn't speak. And Skrovchevsky said, so we've got that covered, right? And the engineer said, uh, I'm not going to try to splice into this. We'll do it until Charlie has the way he wants it. I said, oh, great, Dennis. Thanks a lot. Mm -mm. So we did another take. I didn't miss anything. And Scrooge said, so we got it now. And Dennis says, you better come listen. And I said, what? He said, listen to it. It sounded like I was trying not to miss any notes, right? So what's there, I mean, it's pretty much the way I like to play it. but. Every, every time I, I finally decided that anytime there was more than one take, they always used the one that I missed something anyway. So I wasn't going to worry about it. <laughs> now, you know, this is Boston, where I did mo the most of the recording. You just said something really profound, which is that uh, uh, this is how I heard it. You, your playing is about process, not product. Is that how you said it? Yeah. Well, that's very profound in a performing art. How do you think, like, if you take the process seriously of the production in that moment, so, like, if you really sit and enjoy that concert and take an active role in it, which is how I would interpret what you said, process, not product, how much more important can that artistic experience be for an audience member? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, if you... <laughs> you've probably gone to concerts and find yourself nodding off, right? Because whatever's happening on stage is contributed to that. <laughs> I mean, it's okay to to let music relax you to that point, but if it's right. out of boredom, then it's not all right. And and a lot of a lot of conductors fall into the same trap. They take fast tempos because they don't know what else to do. Right? Bernstein is the only conductor I ever played with that could could stretch out a note to infinity without ever feeling like it was a fermata. Right, I mean, he's the only one. I play with other conductors; they get slower and slower. Like, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> but it, 
I, do you know who Eloise Ristad was? No. She wrote a book called A Soprano on Her Head. Mm. I met Eloise in 1983. She'd just written the book. And she only, I only knew for a couple of years because she died in a tragic canoe accident uh, in the middle of 1985. But she was one of the first people who started doing workshops dealing with performance issues. And she was, she was like a sponge. She could absorb data, process it, and use it I mean, for the benefit of whoever she's working with. One of the first things she said to me <laughs> is that if you think you found the answer, it means you've lost it. And there are a lot of profound thinkers who said things like that, that the Einstein said, curiosity is more important than knowledge. And this, this is very applicable today because the people who are anti-science, politically, they're way over to the right because they want answers. And science is the questions, right? There is, it might be the answer now, but tomorrow they discover something new. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I'm gonna be 82 years old another few weeks. There's not a day goes by if I don't, I don't find something else I don't know. I mean, I've probably forgotten a lot of stuff that I should have remembered too. But Eloise would, would she didn't she didn't put labels on things. She didn't say, okay, we're gonna try a little Feldenkrais or we're gonna try an Alexander technique or this is sort of self-hypnosis. She would just say, try this, try that. Right? She said, if you're worried about missing a note, miss it really good. It's almost impossible to do it. Right? On the other hand, you know. And that's, that's a point I make too, that with, instead of trying to practice for perfection, make sure you never play anything exactly the same way twice. Right? You gotta play the same notes, same relative dynamics, tempos can fluctuate, you know, it, it's, but as far as any kind of nuance or inflection or timbre, I mean, that's, and, and by doing that, you have many more choices, particularly for an audition, right? Because if you try to play it exactly that, what if it happens, they say, uh, we like that tempo a little faster, a little slower. You're screwed. Even in auditions, when they change the rotation of what's there, it will screw up. I don't know if other people, other than trumpeters get screwed up like that, but that, you know, and, and they, you know, and, and I mean, some of the auditions we had, I mean, Guys are like they walk in like with a quadruple case, and I've, I've designed the the repertoire so they can play everything on one or two instruments maximum, right? <clears throat> and what what's interesting is if you know if they have to change the bell and the lead pipe, you go clank 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 clank. It's not any better, right? So, so like why why bother? But, but that's I know conductors. Well, Zell used to be just like a, a, a clock spring wound up before going to Carnegie Hall. I mean, he, he died, I was there three years before he died in 1970. It was almost traditional that the afternoon of the double rehearsal, the week before going to Carnegie, somebody would get fired. Yeah. I mean, because they, they'd miss something or, or who, who knows what. 
after the first night at Carnegie, then he'd relax a little bit. But I mean, that that was like, it had to be, in fact, somebody once asked him how many concerts <laughs> the Cleveland Marshall played. He said, we play eight a week, but only let in the audience for the last two. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's insane. I, I mean, I, I was, during the arbitration, the management's attorneys said, uh, you know, the principal Trump is supposed to be prepared to play his part right from the first verse. I said, yeah. He said, well, I, I heard that, that's not true with you. I said, well, no, that's, I'm, I'm prepared. But I said, you, you don't really understand what it's like playing a trumpet. It's like if you were to, you know, make your last impassioned plea before a jury, and you're at the most important part, you look down, you notice your fly is open. That's sort of like what's playing Principal Trump. <laughs> I said, I, I try to keep the zipper up, but sometimes it slips. Yeah. I mean, the, even the uh, people on the manager's side were laughing by this point. But it, it's, we, we, look, the thing that put the, the recording <laughs> out of business, at least the major companies, that, because it was only the new technology that, that, that caused it to keep going, right? Mm -hmm. And the same orchestras would record the same repertoire again and again and again and again, when, when it went from, from 78s to 33s, to stereo, to, then the eight track, which went <laughs> down the tubes, and then to, to, to uh, digital, right? And then the record companies put themselves out of business because they found they could remaster all the stuff they'd recorded years and years before. They didn't have to pay anybody anything because all those people were dead, right? So they put under five. I mean, if you had your choice of buying a, a modern symphony conducted by Bruno Walter or Seiji, or would you have to think very long? Not really. <laughs> well, I mean, you could have both if you're an audiophile, but then the, the, this is an interesting point. Uh, I had never kind of heard it phrased this way that the recording industry killed itself or the recording contracts killed themselves by repetition of the same repertoire and by becoming uh so similar right like orchestra after that, that's because the same engineers and producers were recording multiple orchestras right and they had the final they had the final say i mean a good example is when we started doing what they call location records they record the concert then have a patch session right okay we're it's going to be more real. No, no, it didn't take very long to figure out how to screw that up. When we did the modern five, right, at the past session, the producer said, well, we, we have the, the opening from every performance, but there's always somebody coughing or rattling the program. Or, so you want to do one take? I said, yeah. That's one they use, except they splice the orchestra in like this much too soon. Ugh! And when I confronted him with it, he said, oh, you made the big Chalarondo. I said, it's a funeral march. You think the casket is rolling downhill? <laughs> I mean, I said, don't you know the piece? It says, it means it's out of temple. The temple is the same, right? So, I mean, that's, we, we had several other fights over other things too. I mean, I mean we, we recorded Electra. We had two patch sessions. They were also, that was the first thing we did in on location. Hildegard Barons was playing the part of Electra. 
about 20 minutes into the second three-hour session, she's losing it, man. Because, I mean, it's uh, really difficult. The same producer comes out and says, well, you played much better than we thought you would, so we're done. <laughs> I think, you asshole. You know, you could just thank us and say, we, we, we have everything covered. But that, that's, that's the way he was. That's pretty bad. Now, like, the, the reason I... I find I like I said I had never heard it said this way and you're bringing some clarity to my thinking about something you had said you're not sure how orchestras will recover after COVID but you know in a way it's the other shoe dropping on a lot of issues that were already there now do you think that the repetition the same repetition of repertoire of style of you know if you're always getting the same recording with a different orchestra do you feel like that has permeated to a point where orchestras sounding so similar and playing the same things could also spell one of the reasons why their numbers keep dwindling? Like, I had never made that connection between the record industry and the orchestras themselves. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Well, the only people who know that all the orchestras sound the same are the ones who collect all the recordings from, of the same piece. There, there's a little bit of a side there. The head of, of Box Records, was, his name was George Mendelssohn. Right? This is a true story. He was in Goody's record store in New York with Otto Klemperer. Right? And Klemperer, I think he'd already been on the fire so his, his mouth was saying. So he says to this young guy, there says, I want to paint over night recorded with Klemperer. The kid says, I'm sorry, we don't have, we have the one carrier. He says, no, I don't want the one carrier, I want the clamper. And the kid says, so why do you want the clamper? He says, I am clamper. He says, who is he, Beethoven? He says, no, that's Mendelssohn. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a true story, right? That's great. <laughs> but, you know, the, there was a conductor, this was in, in Savannah, I think, a friend of mine was playing principal flute for a year. It was when, she plays in Birmingham, but the orchestra was shut down for a couple. This conductor said, I don't even know what the piece was. He said, well, I listen to six different recordings. I just can't decide on what tempo to use. Duh. <laughs> you know, and, and, and one of my big pet peeves is the metronome, you know, addiction. Where they, they, they have to do Beethoven's metronome right. He put those metronome markings in long after the piece was written in most cases, right? And you don't know how accurate his metronome was, right? It could have been off by six, 10 beats. My theory is that he was having a few schnapps with his nephew in the kitchen and he says, all right, let's put 120 to the quarter of those fuckers. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, that's, and I, I don't, I, in fact, I, I think I say somewhere in the book, it's, it's more important you know, whether it's Allegretto or Andante or Vivace, it gives, gives more of a sense of, of what the character is like, not the metronome marking. Right? And, you know, that, in fact, I, I advise students not, not to practice with the metronome. You know, you know, if you can't develop, you know, a sense of where that's, that's where, I mean, Bacchow never said practice with the metronome. He said, you subdivide. You can't tell that, you, you know, that, that they're, a metronome is not going to help. In fact, I remember I, I was on the committee for the uh, concertmaster audition. It was back in 
84, I guess it was, 83. There were some really outstanding players. And one of the pieces that was on, it was a Schubert symphony. It was a scherzo. These were tapes we were listening to, right? You could have superimposed them because everyone would start. I asked the one assistant concertmaster, I said, is it not possible to play that in tempo? He said, should be. <laughs> yeah, right. And I know those people price with the metronome, but they don't have the metronome going. So unless you're, you're doing an overdub that you have to have clip, click track. In fact, we, we did a recording like that in Boston. We did the soundtrack for uh, Mystic River mm. that Clint Eastwood actually wrote the theme. Right? Except, I mean, I've, I've watched the movie three or four times. I, can, I get so involved in the movie, I can't, I've never been able to tell whether they use any part that I actually recorded. <laughs> but but they're, it, it was basically football. They made me fancy that. So we had headsets on the stand. But since most of the footballs, I mean, my colleagues, you know, they didn't, that, except the conductor was like, so he had to. Because some people that were wearing the click tracks were playing with, with the click in spite of what he was doing. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, unless it's a composer like Elliot Carter used metric modulation, even that one, I mean, 73.5, I mean, I don't know what the fuck that tempo is. I don't even have a metronome that would divide it that way. I know they make them that way, but so what? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'd spent a lot of time in the uh, learning the music of Karl Heinz Stockhausen, and he does a lot of this. He uh, and it's all it's all for his. Once you realize it's own for it's all for his own theoretical safety that he's dividing uh, two ten specifically in half or in a quarter, and that's why you end up with a point five or a point two point five. Then there's some level of like, well, it, I don't, you know, it's not a real thing. And and then the added question there is like, do we hear? We know for a fact we don't hear past a certain point in diversion of tones. That right. must be true for tempi too, and we don't even relate to tempo in re right. unless it's in relationship to something else. Yeah, there, there was there was a composer I knew when I was in New York. His name was Emmanuel Gent, G H E N T. I never really caught on, but he used a technique. He used the I don't know if he actually invented it, but it was called the polynome. Mm. Where, he'd, where everything was written in standard notation, but a different metronome markings. So you'd have like two against three, against four, against five, against six. And he had these, like, I remember, I was at his apartment once, he had seven metronomes lined up. Bam! I mean, every time they all came together, you just about jumped out of your chair, right? And my friend Ronnie Anderson was doing a lot of contemporary, he's the one that commissioned, uh, uh, just forgot the composer's name. It'll come to me. Anyway, it's, a, uh, it's an unaccompanied trumpet song. It's very, very different. Because I, I, he played some of Manny's work. And I said, so do you use the click track? He said, yeah, the first couple of hours, but then you don't need it. I mean, you know how everything fits together. So there, there's some 
Renaissance music, I, I found out that they, it was an isorhythmic motet or something where like every part was in a different meter. So it was that you had a, this, this very complex, it was probably as, as difficult as Stravinsky, you know. In fact, he may have heard that, that's why he wrote the way he did. But that's, if you, if it, it's supposed to have this, this wild effect rather than, than it's supposed to be so clean that you can, you know, do it with a microscope. Right. So again, it's it's like technique overrides music, and that's I don't think is necessarily the the best way of dealing with that stuff. Like so I, what? There was, what's, there, oh, sorry, go ahead. Once in in Japan, another example. I I told you I free associate and go on and on. Go ahead. <laughs> there was a big blizzard in Japan in our tour in 1986. We ended up having to take regular trains. Even the bullet trains weren't running, and I had. I heard two of my colleagues in back of me discussing Ralph Scherbaum played the Walton Cello Concerto. But he did, the slow move was much slower anybody, than the metronome markings, right? So one of them said, yeah, I asked him, asked him if he'd ever played it in England when in Walton was there. He said, yeah. He said, what, what do you say about your slow movement? He said, he liked it. He said he, he thought that if, it, if he'd known it and worked at that slower tempo, he would have written that metronome marking. <laughs> And there's a lot of examples of that, of yeah. just that, uh, not just with tempo, but with a lot of musical choices that conduct composers are like, oh, that's what I wanted. Thank you for, for making that mistake. I've, I realize now that's better. But that's, that's why I said uh, metronome marketing is a fiction of the conscious mind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I mean, unless a composer is writing for soundtrack, mm -hmm. they don't have a specific metronome marking in mind. Not, I'd say 99 out of 100, right? Right. And invariably, well, here's another example. New York Philharmonic recorded Tchaikovsky Fifth with Bernstein. Right? Bill Myers told me he'd heard a performance when he was still in high school where Joe Singer was principal horn. And the, the first four measures are like super adagio. And then the horn comes in. Dee, da, da, dee. He said, I determined then that if I ever play it with Bernstein and he started that slow, it was going to stay that slow. Now, Phil Myers is probably the only one player in the world that could do that and bring it off. I mean, it's like. <laughs> so the recording came out and whoever reviewed it just panned the whole thing, said the only thing that saved it was the tempo and the lovely slow movement. <laughs> so you know, there, there are a lot of examples of you know things that try. Well, in fact, look, most of the discoveries in science, getting back to that, were accidents. They were looking for something else, right? So you know, if if you that's that's why the the indirection works, right? Because if you're aiming for over here, that's that, that's how hypnosis works, right? I mean, you, the test is you hold a pencil and you say, I can drop the pencil, I can drop the pencil, I can drop the pencil, but you can't drop the pencil because you're holding onto the pencil. So it's just all in a state of consciousness, right? So if, if you think about, I've had students come in and say, oh, I have a lot of trouble. I have a very thick tongue or I have a heavy tongue. So we, we do whatever, you know, doing other stuff and all of a sudden, I said, now, what, what was that problem with your tongue? <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's just one example, but 
again, I, I digress. I don't know whether that. Yeah, I, I guess to just to wrap it up, uh, what is there a solution to like, what do you think could be the breaking point to to get people to, you know, I mean, I say this all the time too. music makes no real money. Like if you joined the classical music circuit to make money, you really messed up. You could have spent five hours a day doing something else that would have made a lot more money. Unless you're a soloist. Uh, unless, unless you're a soloist. Fair enough. But, I, but then the, the question then becomes like, uh, how do we go back to, like you said, like uh, that story you told about, are you having fun? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know if you can return. I mean, it's, it's that way in, in all areas. I mean, back when Roger Clemens was leaving the Boston Red Sox to go to Houston, I, I don't even know what he was asking for. It was like probably 1% of what they're making now. And somebody point out that in 1933, Babe Ruth made $85,000. And somebody point out that was more than President Hoover made. He said, I had a better year than he did. Hmm. Right? But, but on the, you know, I mean, if, if I were making, I would have to figure out if, if I, how much per note, right? In, in fact, when I was in Cleveland, the first, <laughs> probably the first two and a half years, I was probably the highest paid orchestral trumpet player in the country per note, because I hardly ever played anything. I sat in the locker room, I got paid whether I played or not. Right? <laughs> it, it's, yeah, I, I don't know if there's any way to save it. Yeah. I mean, my a friend of mine is Terrence Blanchard. You know, right? he, I'm a big fan. He wrote, he was commissioned by the St. Louis Opera company to write an opera based on Charles Blow's biography. We heard the, I heard the premiere performance. The Met was supposed to have done this last season, but it was canceled because everything was canceled. They, they could have paid a, a couple more months, the musicians, they hadn't paid off Levine for, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're opening the next season with that, followed by Porgy and Bess. <laughs> I said, and that's, um, they're trying to link those two together. I said, yeah. I said, that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> anyway, so the, uh, I said, yeah, that, that's ironic that, you know, all right, Porgy and Bess is well established and it's about, you know, black people written by a white Jewish guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, Irony, right? I mean, I talked to Joseph Horowitz. Uh, I don't know if you know him, uh, author, just about this, that uh, the the programming now for quote-unquote diversity was so ridiculous because they it was such a cop-out, partially because the people that deal with programming in orchestras, it's different from museums that have curators that research and actually can make interesting connections. And so yeah. you end up with some administrators saying, well, you know, this this black jazz musician wrote a thing. Let's just pair that with the only other black opera in our repertoire. And I, this was <laughs> 19, late 96, 97, I can't remember that year. BSO was, was like yeah, their outreach program, right? So we, we, we played a concert in the Reggie Lewis arena. Reggie Lewis had been a Boston Celtics who died of, you know, heart something, would probably related to drugs and so on. And we, we had, I think, uh, I don't know if Sarah Vaughn was on that or 
but you know, it was a, it's too long ago to remember exactly who it was, but the artistic advisor committee had to talk Ozawa out of doing the slave course from Nabucco. <laughs> I mean, how, how about, you know, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, listen, I, I want to be mindful of your time, but, uh, you know, thanks so much for doing this. Maybe uh, we can do another one when your book is out and I read it and we can talk about that. Okay. And, you know, uh, like I said, it's been 40 years in the making. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's wonderful. One of my students took a picture from across the river. with. with the oh, arts. I see that. That's nice. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's... There's a lot of tie-ins that it was a friend of my daughter who I've known from Minneapolis. They were in elementary school together, did the designs. But that that's the you probably if you've seen my CDs, you've seen that before, because that that was a sketch my wife made, but she doctored that. It's very anyway. nice. Yeah. But it's, you know, let's let's definitely do another one when your book is out. And uh on a separate note, you know, it's very nice to finally meet you. Like I said, I studied with Russ and you know, got secondhand smoke from that. Uh, yeah, I, from... I, I do have essays from former students, and he he wrote one in the book about his, oh, wonderful. his experience with me. So, <laughs> yeah, he's a character, but <laughs> he, he is. Yeah, we, we I went to uh, it was nineteen. Uh, sorry, two two thousand eighteen. Was celebrating thirty years of going to Brazil, and he was. I had several students from here go down. He went down for that, and he. All my kids got along great, you know. That's that's one of the the characteristics of uh, uh, people who study with me. They're most of them are very collegiate and supportive of each other, and that's yeah. And you know, meeting you now, I can see where Russ got like a lot of uh, things from positive things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And and I, especially in something that's been very meaningful to my life, that is, um, the kind of what you're saying there, the value we put in our own relationship with music, but also like our relationship with other people, and that kind of generosity in, you know, Russ was always there to go bad for us when yeah. other people weren't, uh, despite political. Uh, issues. You studied with him in Montreal? Yeah, I studied with him in McGill uh, in 2009 to 2013, 14. Huh. Was, yeah. was, was Bob Gibson still around? No, point? not at that time. Uh, Ed Carroll was there when when I was there. Because Bob, Bob and I were at Fort Leonard Wood together, his, and his father had been in the Minnesota Orchestra, Minneapolis Symphony. That's right. But uh, it, Russ auditioned for second trumpet in, in Philly. I think, I don't know if it was Seymour's sabbatical or what. But when he got cut, he's packing up and Don McComas says, hey, bravo, man, it sounded great. He said, so why did he get cut? He said, you sound too much like a first trumpet. And I thought, how do you play first trumpet repertoire and sound like you're the second trumpet player? <laughs> yeah. I've so wondered I, the same thing about most auditions for... for when, we, yeah. when we had auditions for second trumpet, I made up the list that was all second trumpet solos, right? From Bartok, uh, Mandarin, uh, Concerto, um, Salome, right? Well, 
Thank you so much, Charlie. And, and you know, let's let's uh, I'll be watching for your book, and then I'll contact you again. Okay, all right. I'll send you an email when it's uh, it's, it's through Amazon. And then... Right. Okay.